Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we begin our new series in earnest this week as we begin to look at the book of Colossians and then following Colossians, we will look at the book of Philippians. Amazing that we have access to letters that were written over 2,000 years ago. It's just remarkable. This morning, we're going to look at Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and understand the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom... We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Indeed, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, a few weeks ago, I received a fabulous book recommendation from our own Dave Cleland, who had received it from Randy Rumelat and... Um, Dave and Randy love military books, and um, this book is by Admiral William McRaven, who was the commander of um, special operations here in the U.S. He was also the chancellor of the UT system for a number of years, and he's written, um, uh, I guess you could say, an autobiography about his life and special forces. An amazing guy uh, by all accounts, and so... This one story that he told in the book, he, he goes back a number of years to the mid-90s when he was the commander of SEAL Team 3. And as commander of SEAL Team 3, he was looking at a certain platoon, he was providing observation, he was looking at a special training exercises they were doing at Morro Bay on the California coast. And when he got to the beach, when he saw what they were doing, he realized there was a problem. He realized they were, these were not the conditions that you would want to do 
this particular kind of exercise in. These seals, they were in these boats, and they were going to go from the bay, Morro Bay, out into the open ocean, and you had to go through this precarious jetty to make it to the other side. Well, this was the middle of winter when these massive wave sets would hit the shore in threes, one after the other after the other, increasing in size and weight and significance. Wave sets that would be very difficult to time just the right time to go between them out through the jetty, out into the open ocean. So when Commander McRaven, as he was known at the time, he went to the beach, he said, are there any comms? Can we get the guys in the boats? They said, no. He said, get me on a boat and take me out there. So he gets on a boat, he goes out there, he's talking to his men, and he asks the commander in the boat, do you think you can time this correctly? Do you think you can make it between these wave sets safely out into the open ocean? The commander, without hesitation, said, absolutely, we can do it. Then he looked at the men who were in the boat, and he perceived in their eyes doubt and question, but they all answered, yes, we can do it. And he said, no problem, I'll go with you. To which they responded in shock, oh, no, 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 you don't need to do that. We can't have you in this boat. That's not the right thing. He said, I'm going. So they paused, and they hesitated, and they said, okay. He didn't have any of the foul-weather gear that one would have to be going on an expedition like this. So they put him, I actually looked it online, because in my vast background in tennis, I don't know much about seal operations. Um, so there was this particular kind of boat, and they had in this boat something called a bolster seat, and in this bolster seat, there was this three-attachment harness that they would put people in, and you would not fall out of the boat. It would keep you secured in the boat, so they put Commander McRaven in this bolster seat with the three-point harness, and off they went and they get up to the edge of these wave sets. And immediately, Commander McRaven knew that the commander in the boat was timing the wave sets wrong. As he was perceiving them and judging them, and when the commander in the boat said, go, 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 in his mind, he was thinking, no, no, no. For reasons that I don't understand and are not elaborated on the book, the commander of the boat timed it between the first and the second wave of the wave sets that came in threes. So the boat makes it between the first wave and the second massive wave, slams down on the boat, turning them over, cracking the boat, setting them up for the humongous third wave to finish the job. Fracturing the boat, turning it upside down, what kind of boat is Commander, I mean, what kind of seat is McRaven in? He's in this bolster seat. There's a three-point harness. He can't get out. He's underwater. There was this particular kind of cord, I guess it was called a lashing cord, okay? It had wrapped around his neck. And the more he pulled on it, the tighter it got. All the other men, because they weren't, they weren't, um, seat belted in, they had all popped up and they were making their way for their life to get away from the next wave set. He's underwater, a number of feet down, it is totally dark, 
he's completely overwhelmed, and he knows he's going to die. And things got dark, he articulates in the book. His lungs began, he felt like they were going to burst. He started to pray, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's free. And he makes his way from the darkness, and he bursts through into the light. And in the book, he attributes it to the hand of God that there's no way he could have got out of that three-point harness and that cord wrapped around his neck. He has no explanation other than the hand of God, and he made it to the surface. He titled the chapter Second Chances because after being saved from that incident, he wanted to make the most of his second chance. Here's how he articulates Second Chances. Second Chances, they come. They come with expectations and obligations. They can heal second chances or they can cut. Some people will make the most of them and the giver of the chance will be proud. He wanted to make the most of his second chance. Second chances are motivating. They can move you to live up to the opportunity that you've been given and honor the person who gave it to you. He also articulated in this chapter on second chances that he should have never been in that position to begin with. He got fired early on in his SEAL career, totally derailing it until some senior officers saw something in him and gave him a second chance, motivating him to walk worthily of this second chance. Now that dynamic of wanting to live up to a second chance, that dynamic of wanting to honor the person or the situation that gives you this second chance. That's the dynamic that's played out in our text today. Okay, as indicated, we're looking at Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Let's look at your map. You have a map there, kind of big picture, and then there's a blown-up portion there that kind of highlights Colossae. Colossae, I think, I think Wes and Meredith Boyd just got back from the Holy Land. As remarkable as that was, I don't think they made it to Colossae or to Turkey. So this is, Colossae is in modern-day Turkey. It's about 130 miles east of Ephesus. Okay, so as you look at your map, for three years in Paul's missionary journeys, from 52 A.D., so think about this in terms of your dates. Get your reference points. If Jesus is crucified in 33 AD, 52 AD, the Apostle Paul is in Ephesus for three years. He's doing well. He's shaping, equipping, molding the church in Ephesus. It's amazing in God's providence how all of these things work together. So about 52 AD, Paul is teaching in Ephesus. You can see that on your map as well. And while he's teaching and shaping and molding that church, he receives a visitor. A visitor named Epaphras. Epaphras was converted under Paul's ministry when Paul is teaching in Ephesus. And then about 53 AD, 54 AD, Epaphras goes from Ephesus to Colossae, about 130 miles east, and Epaphras is the one who founds the church at Colossae. 
So think in your mind's eye, 54, 55 AD, a converted Epaphras has gone from Ephesus to Colossae to start the church. What's also so cool and amazing is we know in whose house the church in Colossae met. Any ideas as to where Epaphras' church, the church at Colossae met? They met in Philemon's house. So when Paul writes a letter to Philemon, it's actually going to the house church in Colossae. So interesting, okay? So the founding of the church in Colossae happens around 54 or 55 AD, 55 AD being a very infamous date in the Roman Empire, 55 being a very infamous date in the life of the Apostle Paul. Anybody have any idea what infamous event happened in 55 AD that was deeply influential in the life of the Apostle Paul later? Any idea? If you looked up, you know, this day in history, it's kind of cool, you can look at like the United States, this day in history. This year in history, AD 55, Nero assumes the emperorship in Rome. Ten years later, Nero would execute Paul and Peter in Rome. These were important days in the early church. Okay? Paul is shaping and guiding the Gentile church. He did not know it, but he didn't have much time left. It was pivotal. It was, it was crucial that these foundational teachings about the person and work of Jesus Christ get communicated. And we have some of the richest Christology, maybe the richest Christology in the entire Bible, in the book of Colossians. Isn't it remarkable that we actually have, we don't have the original manuscript of Paul, but we have access to the very words of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, okay? So do we have some of these dates in our mind? Okay, we won't be quizzed on this next week or anything, okay? Paul's in Ephesus, 52, 53, 54, 55, around that time. Epaphras gets converted. He takes the gospel to Colossae. The church grows. It does well. The context of Colossians is this. I know this is a lot of dates. My wife will have to tell me at home if this was too many dates, okay? The context of this particular letter, fast forward a few years. Remember what we said, the, con that the, the immediate context of Colossians. Do you remember back from last week? Where is Paul when he writes the letter to the Colossians? Do you remember where he was? House arrest in Rome, where he could receive guests. He could send out commissioners and delegates. Well, one guest that Paul receives when he's in house arrest in Rome is our friend Epaphras. So Epaphras gets converted goes to Colossae, starts the church, it grows, it does well. Epaphras comes back to Rome, or actually goes and travels to Rome to tell Paul how it's going, to get advice and encouragement from Paul, and then Paul sends a letter to Colossae to give some answers to questions and further disciple them. Clear as mud, you got that? Hopefully, Paul's in Rome, he's heard how the church is doing, from Epaphras, he is writing a response. That's what we know as the book of Colossians. Okay, let's look at our text. 
verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle that's taking on kind of a, a technical meaning by 60 to 62 AD. Paul, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's an authorized representative of Jesus. He's a sent one of Jesus. Okay, the Lord Jesus Christ personally chose and commissioned Paul to represent himself, to preach to the Gentile church. In other words, Paul is not commending just advice, right? This isn't just advice and encouragement. Paul is giving authoritative teaching. He's also writing with a dear friend, another disciple of his, Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, he was chosen. He didn't take on this mantle on his own. And Timothy, our brother. There's some different vocabulary in Colossians and some of the other Pauline epistles. It may be likely due to Timothy's influence. Look at verse 2. Who's he writing to? To the saints, okay? To those who've been saved in Christ and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So he's, he's writing in terms of a very standard, ancient letter-writing format within the first century. We actually have surviving copies of ancient Latin letters and Greek letters, and they follow a particular pattern. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is not in my notes. Carol Redfield, I'm going to brag about you a little bit. Uh, about a year ago, Carol Redfield, she leads a Bible study on the Apostle Paul's letters. And it's an ingenious idea that Carol had to encourage us to write letters of encouragement and grace and love in one another's life. And so in her Bible study, she looks at various churches that Paul started and various letters that Paul writes from which we can glean ideas about how to encourage each other. It's a fantastic idea, a great Bible study along the way. This was a standard form of letter writing. Let me just read briefly. One textbook says, most surviving ancient Greek and Latin letters, they begin with a salutation that contains the name of the sender, the name of the addressee, and a greeting. Often the greeting was followed by a prayer for the recipient, sometimes by a wish uh, for the recipient's health, occasionally by a statement of thanksgiving to a god or gods. That's exactly what we're seeing here. Paul is accommodating himself to standard letter-writing practices of the day in communicating this letter. Look at verses 3 through 5 in this standard thanksgiving section. Paul writes, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see Trinitarian aspects here. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank him when we pray for you. Okay, what is he thanking God about related to the Colossians? Well, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so he's thanking God for two reasons. For the faith they have in Christ Jesus. Remember we talked about that last week. We're not going to go into that again in depth. For anyone in the first century, Jew or Gentile, to believe in a crucified Christ 
is one of the greatest miracles in history. No way this could have happened, in my estimation, outside the power of the Holy Spirit. He's so thankful that people are responding to Epaphras' teaching. He's so thankful that the Holy Spirit is at work changing people with the power of Jesus' gospel. So he thanks God for that. And then he says, because of the hope you have in heaven, he commends them for their love for all the saints. I just want to stop here briefly. One mark, there, there, there are a variety of marks of someone who is a truly saved, spirit-filled, Jesus-loving Christian. One thing that sets cultural Christianity that I grew up in, that's how I was born and raised, as a southern fried cultural Christian who went to church every week because that's what you did in the South. The gospel was not a part of my heart whatsoever. One distinguishing characteristic of a saved Christian is a love for other Christians. That's not to say that as Christians we can't or shouldn't have non-Christian friends. I have many non-Christian friends through the game of tennis that I love. I've met many people that I actively befriend and thoroughly enjoy their friendship. But there is something special. There is something unique, something almost mystical about the connections that believers have with one another that transcends culture and place. Um, being a pastor, you get to meet Christians from all over the world. I can honestly say it doesn't diminish the fact that I am an American citizen, and I love that, and I'm proud of that, I hope, in all the right ways. But there are bonds that I experience with other believers in other parts of the world that, that are far deeper than my connection to them as Americans. Not to diminish that, one fruit of being a Christian is that you love other Christians. And I want to encourage our church in that. I do, I do sense that happening more and more at Providence Presbyterian Church. What did Jesus say? All men will know that you are my disciples if what happens? If what? If you love one another. If you care for one another if you show an interest in one another. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the great unifier. It brings people together that would not connect in any other parts of life. There are so many people that I have the privilege of knowing because of the gospel that had I not been a Christian, no connection whatsoever. May we be a testimony to the world. My prayer, if Paul would have written a letter to us, I would have loved it if he would have been thankful for the love that we have for other people. I pray that we're the kind of church that like I have to kick you out when it's time to turn the lights out and get ready for Haziel service because you love being together and you love being together because we're a family in Christ Jesus. Let's go to Second half of verse 5 through 8. He writes, Of this, he's speaking of their hope in heaven. Of this, you have heard. You've heard about this hope. How did you hear about it? Well, you heard about it in the word of truth that's the gospel, the good news. You heard about it through the gospel. 
Verse 6, of which this gospel, it has come to you. As indeed, what, did, what does he say here that's consistent of what we saw last week? Which has come to you, this gospel, as indeed it has, where? In the whole world, a message of a crucified Savior was growing like wildfire. He says, as it also, this gospel, it grows among you. It's grown since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. When you understood, I love that phrase, it grew when you understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, here's the, um, you know, the actual physical means by which you heard it. You heard it, you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love and spirit. So Epaphras has visited Paul in Rome. He's giving an update on how things are going. This letter is Paul's response, verses 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. That's remarkable. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to, you know, he's saying, I... I I pray that you would grow in your Christian maturity, in your wisdom, in your holiness. I pray that you would bear fruit. Why? Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, meaning worthy of Christ Jesus. Why does he pray that they would walk in such a way that was worthy of Christ Jesus? Why do you think that is? Has there ever been anyone more worthy than Jesus Christ? Has there ever been anything more wonderful, more significant, more beautiful than the grace of God in Christ Jesus? Never has there been. We could live a thousand lifetimes and never live up to what Jesus has done for us. What a beautiful way to say it. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, paraphrasing it so that we would look like Jesus Christ, act like Jesus Christ, think more like Jesus Christ so that we would honor him. And we'll end with this. This is just, this is an intro sermon. Obviously, we can't do this on our own strength, right? It's impossible to, to walk in a manner that's worthy. Absolutely impossible. We're going to need some gas in the gas tank. We're going to need fuel. The Holy Spirit's the fuel. Look at verses 11 through 14. So he prays for the power that enables this to be possible. We're going to end with this. May you be strengthened. It's almost like a benediction. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? So that you would have endurance and patience. It was hard to be a Christian in 62 AD. Extremely difficult. Paul was about to die and be executed. He's praying for endurance and patience. They would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, giving thanks to the Father, who's done what? Okay, and I'm going to bring this full circle. What did, we now know him as Admiral McRaven, what did he say about second chances? You want to honor second chances. You want to make the most of your second chance. You want to honor the one who gave you the second chance. Well, how does Paul describe 
our second chance. We were lost in Adam, hopeless, bereft of hope, but in his infinite wisdom, what has God for us done for us in Christ? Look at verse 13. These are some of the richest phrases in the New Testament. What has Christ done? He has delivered us. Or actually, this is the work of God the Father. God the Father has delivered us. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. Can you imagine what your life was like before Jesus Christ? Those of you who have experienced an adult conversion maybe, maybe understand a little bit more fully, more poignantly. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness. Do you know any non-Christians? I was just at coffee with a non-Christian, an atheist on Monday morning. And when he described his view of the world, it's the definition of hopelessness and darkness and futility. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, we have inheritance of the saints and the light. Verse 12, verse 14. This kingdom of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, we have been bought with a price. We enjoy the forgiveness of sin. Beloved, God has given us the most wonderful second chance of all. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light of the son that he, that he loves. We don't have enough time we don't have enough opportunity to live in a way that would bring him honor and glory. He's that worthy. He's that majestic. And that's what this book is all about. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this beautiful articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was growing all over the world. Then it has since pervaded the entire globe. Father, we thank you for not only the gospel in, in general, but, but the truth of it in particular, that you have delivered us, the saints of Providence Presbyterian Church, from the domain and hopelessness of darkness, and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, where we gain access to the inheritance of Christ and the light in whom we have redemption, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, this week our prayer is simple. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit with overwhelming gratitude to try this week to live a life worthy of this calling. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name, amen and amen.